you can take your Bibles and turn them to Mark chapter 9. So we look at verses 30 through um, 41. This is your first time here. You haven't been here um, very often. We um, are just walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're a little bit over halfway through. Started, I think, in January or so. So excited to consider this passage, which is or has been this whole week just a a challenging passage to me. This has not been, uh, you know, you, you get to certain passages and you're like, that will preach. Um, like chapter 8, verses 34, if anyone would come after me and deny himself and take up his cross. Like when I got to that passage, I was like, okay, here we go. Like I, I'm ready to preach that one. This one, this one has challenged me and uh, not just in crafting a sermon, I mean, but challenging me personally. And so I hope it, hope it will challenge you as well as we seek to understand it and apply it by God's grace um, let's read verses 30 through 41. This is God's word for us this morning. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But, but they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Father, we come to you now, eager to hear from you and learn from you. Holy Spirit, will you enable us to do so, God? Um, illuminate our minds. Illuminate our hearts. God, help us see your truth. Help us apply it to our hearts. God, guard us from error. Guard us from misunderstanding. Guard us um, from not trying like the disciples did in this passage. But God, I pray um, that you can strengthen us and, and give us eyes to see your glory in this passage. As, as the psalmist prayed, open our eyes so that we can behold wondrous things out of your law. And that's what we are asking for you to do. Even this morning, we pray in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, uh, the sermon is titled, True Greatness. I just want to start off the question. Do you, do you want, in your life, true greatness? Do you want to be a truly great Christian? Do you want, to be, do you want us to be a truly great church? In today's passage, what we'll see is that Jesus doesn't reject the pursuit of true greatness, but what he does is he radically redefines it, right? True greatness is not what we see in the world, but instead true greatness is seen in things like humility and service, which means 
that true greatness is extremely, extremely difficult. You see that? I mean, humility, service, last of all, servant of all, that's difficult things. But the encouraging thing about true greatness as described in Jesus in this passage is that it's available to all of us. True greatness is not attached to a certain ability or to a certain skill set or to a certain personality. But true greatness, while extremely difficult, through the power and indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is achievable for all of us. We can all live a truly great life. Because true greatness is within the grasp of every single man, woman, or child that believes in Jesus. We have three points. Verses 30 through 32, true greatness looks like Jesus. Verses 33 through 37, true greatness looks like holding a baby. And verses 38 through 41, true greatness looks like a big tent and a cup of water. Let's dive into it. Point number one, true greatness looks like Jesus. Verses 30 through 32. So Jesus and the disciples went on from there, passed through Galilee, but he did not want anyone to know. So his time of public ministry is over at this point in time. He's not teaching to to big crowds or anything like that. As we see in verse 31, his main focus is teaching his disciples. And in this section, we see Jesus, for the second time, begin to teach them about his coming death and resurrection. Look at verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. So remember in this section of Mark we're in, uh, Mark chapter 8, all the way through um, chapter 10, there are three passion prophecies. Jesus predicts three times about his coming death and resurrection in 831, um, in today's passage 931, and then you just really wish it would have been 1031, but it's not, um, 1033 through 34. Jesus in this passage today plainly teaches about what's going to happen to him, where he is going to be killed, and he is going to rise Of course, this happens. Jesus did die on the cross for our sins, and he rose again three days later. He's still alive today. But I want you to notice the irony in this phrase in verse 31. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Dwell on this with me this morning. The Son of Man in the hands of men. This is truly shocking if you remember the picture of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Let's read that and think about what the Son of Man is, like what he was prophesied to be. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, to the the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. That is the prophecy of the Son of Man. And in this passage, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men. But Daniel chapter 7, that sounds like someone who couldn't even be touched by the hands of men, right? Let alone delivered into them, let alone killed by these hands of men. I mean, this is a son of man whose kingdom is prophesied, shall never be destroyed. Yet in Mark chapter 9, we see the son of man will himself be destroyed by the hands of men. 
I mean, this is a stunning prophecy and a stunning connection that Jesus makes. The Son of Man delivered into the hands of men. And what this shows us is the humility of the Son of Man. Notice he's delivered. The thing that makes this delivery different from any other delivery is that the thing delivered, in this case, willingly chose to be delivered. Okay, this, this de- delivery chose to be delivered. As we see in John 10, 18, no one takes it, meaning his life, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. So if the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, that means the Son of Man willingly chose to be delivered into the hands of the Son of Man. And this is so shocking. This is so stunning to see the humility of Jesus Christ that the Son of Man in all of His glory and the dominion and the kingdom that will reign forever that He is going to receive, He willingly lays down His life so that He can be killed by the people He created. It's the greatest example of humility ever. This is what Paul picks up on in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-8. through eight. Where Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what's humility? Wrong question. Ask Who's humility? Who is humility? And the Bible teaches us that humility is Jesus Christ, eternally in the form of God, which means that he was God for all eternity, worshipped in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit, and he willingly emptied himself of the privileges of being God to take on human flesh, as Paul said, being born in the likeness of men. And all of a sudden, God the Son had a body. He had a nose. He had to use the bathroom. He had physical limitations. And that's humbling when for all eternity he had been the majestic, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient Son of God eternally. I mean, that's humbling to go from that to walking around like me and you. But that's not rock bottom for Jesus' humility, but instead he continues in his path downward in humility where he dies in the most humiliating way possible, with the most shameful way possible, the most painful way possible, hanging on a cross. Do you see the humility of Jesus Christ? He was rich but became poor. He was exalted in the heavens but came all the way down to this earth, not only to live among us but to die for us. Jesus, as uh, Philippians 2-3 says, counted others more significant than himself. And that's a great definition of humility. I'm going to count others as more significant than myself. And that's perfectly seen in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That Jesus is the ultimate example of humility. Jesus cared more about his Father's will than his will. Jesus cared more about you than himself. As we meditated on previously, I hope you see how perfect it is. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Do you see the humility? He had the richness, but, but, but for your sake emptied himself of that so that you could be filled up. So Jesus in his incarnation, which just means his 
becoming flesh, Jesus in his perfectly righteous life of obedience, Jesus in his selfless compassion and love for others that we see every week, Jesus in most supremely his death on the cross um, in the place of sinners is the greatest example of humility in the history of the world. How did the disciples respond? Look at verse 32. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Okay, so they didn't understand and they didn't ask. I'm guessing after Jesus said this, you could absolutely hear a pin drop. Absolute silence. And I don't think it's proper to read this like they didn't understand and they were afraid to ask Jesus like um, they, they were afraid he was going to lash out at them or something like that. I don't think that's the intention. I think it was they, they didn't understand and they didn't want to ask because they didn't want to know. Like they were afraid of thinking about this. You know, it's like when you hear something scary or something startling, you're like, I don't want to think about that. Like, I think they just didn't want to pursue this line of thought. Jesus is talking about dying. They don't want to even think about it. So the disciples heard it. They didn't really understand it. They were scared of what he said and didn't want to talk about it anymore. And because of that, Jesus' perfect teaching on humility was absolutely missed. And we see that in the next section, verses 33 through 37. True greatness looks like holding a baby, point number two. So... Jesus and his disciples are back in Capernaum. During their travels, there was an argument. There's a debate. I'm guessing the whole way there, Jesus is walking. He's hearing whispers in the back. I don't know how exactly this was playing out, but when they finally get to the house, Jesus asks a question. Verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? And again, I think we see here pin drop silence. You see this in verse 34, but they kept silent. This is a guilty silence. I mean, these, these men are absolutely busted in this moment. And why did they keep silent? Verse 34 explains, for, you see that word for? Because, they kept silent because. On the way, on their journey, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So on the journey to Capernaum, they're arguing about who was the number one disciple. I mean, on the journey... Um, the disciples become the college football playoff committee, right? Who is number one? And they're debating it. They're going back and forth. And don't let the irony slip past you that Jesus had just been teaching them about the greatest example of humility. And the disciples respond to that example, respond to that teaching of his death and resurrection with an argument, argument about who was the greatest. What would lead the disciples, to ever do this. Why are they arguing about who the greatest was in this moment? Number one, I want you to consider the context of Mark and what's just happened. Jesus just took this elite group of disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the Mount of Transfiguration where they had literally the greatest experience in human history, right? Where they saw Moses, they saw Elijah, they saw Jesus shining in all of his glory. Okay, they come down the mountain, and there's nine disciples gloriously failing. Right? They have this extremely embarrassing um, thing where they fail at doing this exorcism. And so you have this great success combined with this great failure. So there's a lot of pride probably going on simultaneously. Um, there's a lot of attempting to save face. And remember, these nine disciples don't know what happened with Peter, James, and John. They weren't allowed to tell, but you had to think they were wondering why are you guys so happy? What, what's this energy about? And so there's all this failure and success mixed around. But number two, 
in light of Jesus saying he was going to die, perhaps the discussion was coming up, you know, their leader's about to be gone, so who's going to be the leader when Jesus is gone? Maybe they're starting to combat with each other a little bit. Number three, consider that this was a part of the religious culture of the day. Self-promotion, self-exaltation were what Pharisees were all about. This is what they did, is they, they performed to be seen as the greatest. Consider just a couple examples in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> sermon, did I say Sermon on the Mount? Yeah, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 1 verses 2. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Matthew 6, 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Matthew 6, 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. These are examples of how the religious culture was in that day, where there's this effort to perform publicly so that you could receive a public reward. You wanted to be known as the greatest. You wanted to publicly perform to show how righteous you were. You wanted to publicly perform to show that you were the best at what you did. And this culture at this moment in this passage, is seeping into the disciples at this very moment, and they begin to fight for position out of pride. And I want you to notice, do you see what happens to their unity in this moment? When you are filled with pride, and you want to fight for position, and you want to see, be seen as the best, and the brightest, and the most accomplished, that absolutely eliminates unity. When, when everybody's focused on self-exaltation, self-promotion, there's inevitably division. May it never be in this church. That's what we're about. We want to be unified, not divided by who's the best and who's the greatest or anything like that. Which leads us to the question, as we, we listed out how um, you know, self-promoting the Pharisees are or were, is our culture really that different? We're talking about how they perform and they act. They, they, they put a public image up and they want to get all this glory. Are we any different today? I mean, I don't think we probably struggle that much with flaunting our fasting or uh, being tempted to pray on street corners or blowing a trumpet when we give. I didn't hear any trumpets this morning. But isn't our culture also completely soaked in pride? I mean, consider the materialism of our culture where we can be so focused on who has the greatest bank account or who has the greatest possessions. Consider social media, which is just one big game of who's got the greatest house and who's got the greatest family and who's got the greatest body or the greatest fantasy team or something like that. Uh, consider modern politics, which is just completely all about self-promotion and self-exaltation. And the question is, could this culture be seeping into our church? Could this culture be seeping into how we do things spiritually? Where we want to be seen as the best, where we want to be seen as the greatest, where we want to win over other people. I know this can be challenging for me in ministry. It's a temptation where, you know, you want to preach great sermons and you want to, you want to 
lead a great church. You want to be a great leader. And you want to be better than other people at these things. It's a temptation for me. And maybe it is for you. you, But none of these things is where true greatness is found. Let's examine what Jesus says. So he sits down. It's this... This verse 35, it's this posture of a rabbi who's about to teach in an authoritative way. He, he sits down, he calls the 12 to him. And what do they say? What does he say in verse 35? If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and servant of all. Jesus, through this saying, gives us the pathway to true greatness. Notice he doesn't deny the, the desire to be great. He doesn't say, if anyone will be first, but he, he, he shows us the real way to do it. It's not through self-promotion or self-exaltation. Greatness isn't found in the things that we think typically make up true greatness, but instead, true greatness is found in choosing the path of humility and service. It's choosing to be last of all, and servant of all. And doesn't that sound so familiar to Mark 8, 34? As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus calls the crowd to himself, remember he, he called the disciples um, in this passage, he calls the crowd with the disciples, and he says, if anyone would, in this, this passage starts, if anyone would, but in Mark 8, 34, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here in Mark chapter 9, he says, if anyone would be first, He must be last of all and servant of all. So true greatness is found in denying yourself and intentionally putting yourself last. It's denying your desires and dreams so that you can fulfill other people's desires and dreams. It's putting yourself last so that you can put others first. And Jesus is saying, that's what true greatness looks like. When we think of true greatness, we often think of someone like Michael Jordan, I mean, he's successful. He's got an entire brand. I mean, football teams. <laughs> football teams. He didn't play football. Has, has his logo on their jerseys. He's rich. He's famous. You guys all know who that is. I'm, I'm guessing everybody knows who Michael Jordan is. We think that's true greatness. But Jesus is telling us in this passage, don't be distracted by the worldly definition of true greatness. Don't be distracted with this effort to be first and to be seen and to be, and to be praised and to be known. But instead... Focus on true greatness. What does true greatness look like? It looks like being last of all and servant of all. I've got some examples here. True greatness might look like taking care of your elderly parents. Sacrificial love and compassion. Patience. True greatness might look like coming to this church. um, Not looking to be blessed, but to bless somebody else. I'm going to come here. I'm going to serve. I'm going to give. True greatness looks like a soldier giving up his life to protect others. True greatness looks like some of the people in this church, and I I see these people who week after week sacrifice their time to serve kids so that kids can know Jesus. You know, there's, there's, there's people right now downstairs serving kids. And they're not getting to experience the worship service. They're not getting to hear a sermon. They're not because they are serving others. Do you see that? And Jesus is saying, that's what true greatness is. We might be tempted to see, you know, what I'm doing right now is the truly great thing. I, I'm preaching God's word. I don't want to diminish the preaching of God's word. But this is a kind of a, 
up-front up position. But Jesus here says, hey, true greatness is being last of all and servant of all. So we see true greatness downstairs at the moment. And I, that's a great example for us today because of what verse 36 does. What verse 36 says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms. Let's be clear. The Christian worldview loves children. Did you know that? Biblical teaching. Christian worldview loves children. Our statement of faith, the Baptist faith, the message says, children from the moment of conception are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. We believe that every child is made in the image of God. That every child is a blessing from the Lord. That every child deserves to be protected. That, every, that children are the future of this church. That they are such a blessing to us. They're not a burden, they're a blessing. They're really cute too. I've got a cute one. She's at home today. Hey Madeline, if you're watching. Um, our nursery's going downstairs, and isn't that something to be thankful for? I mean, children are a blessing to the Lord. But back in Bible times... People didn't really love kids all that much. Okay, this is a good biblical worldview of children um, from, from the entire Bible. But that wasn't always the case. I mean, in that culture, you needed workers. You needed people who could get things done, who could go work out in the farm and, you know, and work hard. Kids can't do that. And then you combine with that the fact that there was a really high infant mortality rate. And kids just weren't really valued that much in this culture. They were seen as the lowest of the low. And actually, one church historian talks about how one of the reasons why the early church um, exploded in growth um, back at the beginning was because Roman culture so quickly discarded kids because they were so worthless. So they would just throw them out in the street, just throw babies out in the street and stuff like that. And the early Christian church would take these babies in and care for them and love them and welcome them. And that was one of the reasons why they pointed to the church exploding in growth so quickly was their hospitality and reception of children. I pray we could be that kind of church. But the reason why Jesus says this, the reason why we're talking about this is that children are the exact opposite of the spirit the disciples were exhibiting in their argument to Capernaum. Kids have no skills. Amen? They have no resume. They have no claims to worldly greatness. I mean, my daughter, I love her, but she can't really do anything. She sometimes can take things to the trash. But that's basically it at the moment. They're the Children are the antithesis of the disciples in this moment. The disciples are trying to be everything, and the kids are just nothing. The disciples would have no time for children on their quest to greatness. You see that? The disciples would never humiliate themselves by spending time with children. They were serious people. They were dignified. They were on their path to greatness, and kids were just kids. They were useless. They were insignificant. But Jesus Christ, as the true picture of true greatness, takes the time to receive a child in his arms. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Do you see that in verse 36? He took a child, put them in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms. Jesus isn't seeking status. He isn't seeking worldly greatness. Jesus is doing a lowly task that would be completely unnoticed. Jesus was caring about someone no one else cared about. Jesus was noticing someone no one else noticed. Jesus, was, Jesus looks around at a bunch of would-be heroes and the 12 disciples, and instead of them, he pays attention to the zero. He brings the zero in. And look again at what Jesus says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. 
And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So what Jesus does in this verse is Jesus takes a lowly, insignificant, unimportant task and attaches supreme dignity and importance to it. Do you see that? He's saying, if you're kind to a child in my name, you're being kind to me, and thus you're being kind to God. So that means if you serve a child in my name, you're serving God, the least of these. If you hand out a piece of candy at trunk or treat to God, just the smallest act of kindness, I mean, to, to a kid... You're doing it to God. That still worked. The smallest act of service, if done for Jesus Christ, is given the most enormous significance possible. Do you see that? Don't don't try to be great, he's saying. Receive a child. And if you receive that child, you're receiving me. Be kind to that child and you're receiving me. It reminds me, I don't know if this show's still on. I don't know if I've ever watched an episode of this show, but the idea is genius of Undercover Boss. Uh... Imagine, you know, you're working at Chick-fil-A, new guy comes in, and you're just being kind, patient with this guy. You're showing him the ropes. He keeps messing up and, and, and ruining things, but you're patient and kind to him, and, and you're, just, you're just helping him out. And then eventually, at the end of the episode or whatever, you realize you're, you've been patient and kind to the CEO of Chick-fil-A. And think about all the benefits and, and, and wealth and, and kindness that he could show you in that moment. That's kind of what's being said here. These, these small acts of humility, these kind acts of service, this insignificant action of just being nice to a child is actually loving and serving God. It has this huge significance that you might not see. And so what Jesus is teaching here is we need to, as a church, completely change how we value things and what we strive for. We shouldn't strive to be first or to be known or to be great or to be served ourselves. We shouldn't only want to pay attention to people who can benefit us or can offer something to us. But instead, we should focus on the thousand tiny opportunities we have every day to, as Philippians 2.3 says, count others as more significant than ourselves whether it's changing diapers or intercessory prayer or listening to a friend or helping someone move or having an elderly neighbor over for dinner or being generous with your mother, uh, I'm sorry, being generous with your money or taking out the trash or maybe it's even gently rebuking a brother or sister in sin. That would be counting them as more significant than yourself because it would be way more comfortable not to tell them about what they're doing. But all these things are counting insignificant people as more significant than yourself. And Jesus is saying that is where true greatness is found. Not in performing these great actions, not in conquering the world, but being kind to children, giving to people who can't give back. Last point. True greatness looks like a big tent and a cup of water. So in the three passion predictions, Mark 8 through 10, each of them are followed by one of the major three disciples putting their foot in their mouth. So um, Mark 8 leads to Peter saying, you know, may it never be. In this story, we see John come out and put his foot in his mouth in verse 38, um, where he says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This is John responding to Jesus' teaching on humility and service. And this is just another prideful statement. Do you see that? Uh, This is a strange story, no doubt about it. Some dude is running around, 
doing exorcisms in Jesus' name. That isn't part of the official group of the disciples. This kind of feels like the Wild West to me. I mean, things are just happening in the time of ministry with Jesus. But I want you to see the pride in John's statement. I want you to focus on that for just a second. John just had one of the most privileged experiences in human history on the Mount of Transfiguration. And coming down off that mountain, what should John realize? John should realize that Jesus is the truly special one, right? Jesus is the truly exalted one. Jesus is the only one that should be followed. But what does he say in this passage? Notice it really carefully here. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. What does us have to do with it, right? John is not complaining that the man does not believe in Jesus. John's complaint is that the man was not following them, was not a part of their group. And so John's pride was leading him to be exclusive and cliquish. And since he wasn't part of their group, we tried to stop him. That's what it says. So John's speaking for all the disciples here. It's not just John. Another bit of irony here in this passage. Think about it. What happened last week? Last week, the disciples publicly failed at doing an exorcism. And here we see the disciples going out there and trying to stop someone who's successful at doing exorcisms. You see the irony there? It's like you guys were trying to you know, be the gatekeepers on an action that you just failed at so publicly. They were high on pride, low on self-awareness. That's normally how it goes. Either way, this is a weird situation. There's a man, not a part of the disciples, doing miracles in Jesus' name. The disciples tried to stop him. I guess it didn't work. He just kept going. And now they're looking to Jesus for advice. Um, He just brings this up and says, hey, this happened. What's Jesus going to say? Verse 39, Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. So Jesus forbids the stopping of this man and affirms not only that these mighty works are actually happening. So he he says he's doing mighty works. These are real miracles. And he also affirms that these mighty miracles are being done in his name, implying that he is a true believer in Christ. He's saying if he's doing those mighty works, it's because he really believes in me. Jesus is saying this dude is legit. He's sincere. We're not going to stop him. Which leads to Jesus saying in verse 40, for the one who is not against us is for us. Jesus' point is that there are only two groups. There's the people against us and there's the people for us. There's no other group. And if he's not against us, that means he is for us. Jesus is saying, this guy is doing miracles in my name. So obviously he's not against us. And even though he is not currently part of our group, we should support him because that means he is for us. Now, there's another example, I think it's Matthew 12, 40, where Jesus says, if anyone is not for me, they're against me. Notice there's a me instead of an us there. So this is not about being for or against Jesus. This is about being with or without the disciples. Nevertheless, this line of thinking is really challenging to me. Uh, I'm going to try to apply this text, but it's going to feel unnatural, and I don't know if it's... If it's challenging to you, maybe it is. Because here in this passage, we see Jesus being a little open-minded or inclusive. Do you see that? He's like, hey, if, if they're not against me, you know, they're for us. If they're not against us, they're for us. 
He's creating a big tent that so many people can fit under. But pride, on the other hand, can, can make us so exclusive, can it not? Where we want to, in our pride, believe there's only three true Christians in the world. And there's three of us. And if you're not a part of the, the three true Christians, then you're, you're really not a Christian. But Jesus is teaching the disciples here to show humility. He's teaching them to give other people the benefit of the doubt. To, by default, accept people who are working in the name of Christ. He's saying, hey, he's doing mighty works in my name. You can't go doing mighty work in my name, then speak evil of me right afterwards. So they're not against us, so we're going to count them as for us. It reminds me of Paul in Philippians 1, 15-18, where he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then he says, what then? What then? What are we going to do? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul is literally saying that there are people preaching Christ so that he would have a worse time in prison. People are out there preaching Christ so that Paul would suffer for it. And he responds by saying, Oh, well, I'm just glad Christ is being preached. What? I can't imagine if I'm in prison and you guys start doing that to afflict me. I, I don't know if I'd respond in the same way. I, I pray I will by the power of the Holy Spirit. From my perspective, I mean, it seems like if people have bad motives when proclaiming Christ, or if they're jerks while proclaiming Christ, then their proclaiming Christ is completely void. That's how I would think about it, right? It's like, no, it's got to come out of a pure heart. But Paul here says, hey... They're not a part of our group. Yeah, they're against us. You know, he's preaching against me, but hey, they're proclaiming Christ, and so, you know, I'm going to praise God for it. Jesus here says, hey, they're not a part of our group, but, you know, if they're not against us, they're for us. It's easy to think this way in the church, isn't it? Like, if people do just something a little bit differently than us, that means they're against us. Uh, maybe they have, just, and I'm just talking about here in this church, in these walls right, right here in this building, uh, you know, maybe people have a different personality than us, and we think, okay, they're different than us, they're against us. Or maybe they do something different, like they homeschool, and you don't homeschool, it's okay, okay, they're against us. Or maybe they have a little different belief about a, you know, a third order issue than you, and it's like, okay, they're, you know, they're, they're against me, they're so different than me. Or they think outside this uh, building, if, like Presbyterians or Methodists or, or Charismatics or whatever, or a certain brand of Christianity, or even where this can really get applied is like the, the really popular successful churches. Uh, where we can look at those really popular successful churches and say, ugh, they are watering things down. Or ugh, I wouldn't do things the way they do them. And in a lot of cases, that, that may be true. I'm not saying that's not true. But Jesus and Paul seem to be leading us to say, hey, they're preaching Christ. Uh, they might not be perfect. I might not ever go to church there, but they're proclaiming Christ. And whoever is not against us is for us. Now, I want to be really clear here. So uh, if you don't know me well, you might think I'm going a certain direction here. I promise you I'm not going that direction. Um, there are some churches, there are some denominations that are absolutely against us. Okay, I want to be clear there. I'm not saying, hey, as long as they just say, no, that there really are churches, there really are people that are against us. I'm not talking, please hear me, I'm not saying that we should ignore differences on human sexuality. If somebody's like, hey, you know what, homosexuality is okay. I'm not saying we affirm and accept and, and go in that direction. No, I'm not saying we, we accept differences on gender or inerrancy or abortion or the exclusivity of Christ for salvation. Notice in the Philippians passage, 
Paul's primary concern was the truth being proclaimed. What he was less concerned about was the motives or personalities of the preachers. Do you see that? He's like, hey, I don't care what their motives are. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So I'm talking about differences in how we run our churches or or our ministries or the sizes of our churches or the methods of our churches. Uh, Like like how we preach, maybe. You know, I'm an expository preaching guy. We've been 30 sermons in Mark. That's what our ministry is going to be built on, walking verse by verse. But this passage kind of leads me to show some grace to people who preach topically. Do you see that? It's like, okay, they do things a little differently, but they're, they're still proclaiming Christ. Maybe stylistic preferences like music or dress or branding or mission philosophies. We should not be prideful about these things and try to be, oh, we've got it right. We're going to be exclusive. If you don't agree with us on these, these very specific things, you're out. No, instead, we should be willing to affirm and accept people who are different from us while we hold the core, of course. But we should be willing to deeply disagree with people on certain issues and say, hey, they love Jesus. They're proclaiming his name. And in that, I rejoice. So to just close out that, that kind of section, there's 100% time to draw lines. Please do not hear my heart there. But there's also a time where we just need to show grace to people on our differences. Say, hey, they're not, they're not against us by any means. They're for us, but we just do things differently. We're not a part of the same group. Of course, we're going to need the wisdom of God and a deep study of Scripture to do this, but I think that's what God's Word's calling us to. Okay, last verse, 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So the offering of a cup of water to drink was the smallest act of hospitality in the culture at that time. That's like literally the smallest thing you can do. So Jesus, again, is wrapping around to this concept, very similar to verse 37, where Jesus is saying um, the little actions of just welcoming people, being nice and kind and hospitable, will have these big rewards. Jesus is saying, if someone knows that you belong to me, And if they know that and because of that give you the smallest act of kindness and hospitality, they're going to be rewarded for that. And of course, what happens then is you have to reverse the principle, not just to what happens to you, but what you do to other people. Okay, so that's true if somebody's nice to me. That means it's true of me if I'm nice and kind to other people. You see that? Like, for instance, this dude performing miracles outside the clique. They need to show kindness and hospitality to him and, and receive the reward for it. So the disciples in their pride were wanting to exclude and judge and exalt themselves above others. But Jesus is calling the disciples to true greatness, which looks like being welcoming, doing the small acts of hospitality, showing love and service to even the follower of Christ who isn't just like you, fully believing that even the smallest act of service will be rewarded by the Father who sees in secret. In conclusion, one question. Based on that last verse, you see that? Because you belong to Christ. Is that not a beautiful phrase right there? Isn't that a phrase that brings humility along with it as well? Belong to Christ. To be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ, means to forsake the idea of being a self-made man or a master of my own fate. It's to do away with the concept of, I'll do whatever makes me happy. To be a follower of Christ means to say, I belong to Jesus. It reminds me of this old document, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, which starts off with the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong both body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you see how it's such good news to belong to Jesus? But it's also 
humbling to belong to Jesus. Say, I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm his property. He has bought me. So yes, it's, it's, it's humbling, but do you see the peace and comfort and joy and hope that it brings? So this morning at the end of the sermon, I want to invite you to forsake your life of pride, to abandon your self-centered life and your futile attempts to exalt yourself and humble yourself before Jesus, to confess that you are a sinner, to confess that you want Jesus to be Lord of your life, to confess that you want to belong to Christ. The good news is that if you do that, just like in this passage, just like that child in this passage, if you come to Jesus with childlike faith, Jesus will receive you. Jesus will welcome you. Jesus will receive you into his arms. Romans 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You come to Jesus, you're not going to be put to shame. You're going to be received because that's the heart of Christ. Christ is ultimately in that because of the gospel is our true picture of greatness. And he invites us to be truly great in him. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, thank you for this picture of true greatness. God, this was a difficult passage, a challenging passage. I pray that you can help apply it to our lives correctly. God, I pray that we could see the picture of humility found in the cross and that we can live that out in our day-to-day lives, specifically in seeing others as more significant than ourselves and having a posture of humility towards people not like us. Um, God, give us grace to apply this passage. Um, Lead us, guide us, direct us. God, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, I pray that you can begin to work on their heart and that you can um, lead them to yourself, God. Give them faith in this moment. And I pray that we can glorify you as being a church of humility. In your name, Jesus. Amen.